You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome back to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Pastor Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I also have tattoos. And I'm Josh, and I am not a Lutheran pastor, but I'm an audio guy, so I think that makes us a good team. It absolutely does. This time on the podcast, we are continuing our deep dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a hashtag mood. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's nothing better than saying hashtag. It's really, I know the kids are all about it these days. I mean, it's a pound sign, but whatever. Oh, we'll just leave that there for now. <laughs> but anyway, so grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or your beverage of choice, and join us as we explore how the Bible is more complicated and more fascinating than you might think. So, Jen Jen. Yes. What are you drinking today? I am drinking a hazy IPA, and I chose this particular one. Uh, like a real beer snob because I liked the package. It's called Hazy 96 and the packaging is like very like bright colors and it had like a VHS tape on it. So it's clearly drawing on some millennial like nostalgia. And I was like, that must be a good beer. And it is. It is good. Nice. I love that. And what about you? I am drinking a Dutch ale made with real stroopwafels. Oh my God, I love a stroopwafel. Same. Um, so this one's called uh, Lost Dutchman. It's from a brewery in Iowa. I think Iowa does have a lot of Dutch kind of ancestry in that area. So that's really Great. cool. And it's, yeah, I love stroopwafels. Man, they're so expensive, but so addicting. Uh. When I go to Trader Joe's, they will have sometimes a package and it's in one of those places where you're like going to grab it as an impulse buy. And I fall for that every dang time. That's the thing you have. Uh, uh, yeah, that's why I try not to go shopping. I try to we try to order everything online because if I go to the store, I'm going to get something stupid. Like I've recently discovered that I love the Cocoa Pebbles bars. Like never would have tried them if I would have been like. <laughs> But you went to the grocery store when you were hungry. Right. And they were there. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll give this a shot. I love them. So we have to order them now. But it's one of those things that I dug my own self into this hole. I feel like our friend, the author of Ecclesiastes, would have something to say about that. Something about the absurdity of human nature. I agree. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. As you heard, if you listened to our last episode, uh, we already had a lot to say about Ecclesiastes. I had a lot to say about Ecclesiastes, and Josh humored me in letting me share my strong opinions about it. And uh, we still have more we want to say. Yeah, I was going to say, in all fairness, I kind of shared my opinions on it as well, and they weren't necessarily chipper and happy feelings towards it. That's fair. It's not really a chipper, happy book. No. And so when we were prepping today, you kind of told me to focus more of my attention on chapter three. And yeah, I got done with it. I was like, well, that's that's a thing. Yeah. Before we jump into chapter three, uh, if it's OK with you, Josh, I want to do a little little vocabulary. Yes. Um, the real goal of this podcast is just to help 
the average listener sound really cool at parties. And so in order to do that, I'm going to teach you some ancient Hebrew, uh, which I understand is a, always a hit at at any party you might go to. Just just trot out some biblical Hebrew. You know, when I was felt like I was being called to seminary, um, one of my fears before, you know, I decided that it wasn't the right time was that like, I don't want to learn Hebrew. I don't want to do this. <laughs> but maybe this will give me that encouragement I need. I will say Hebrew is tough. I I guess I'm not like some people are just amazing at languages and they can learn like any language. I'm not that person. But I do like Hebrew, even though it's hard. So we mentioned last time that I wrote my master's thesis in seminary on the book of Ecclesiastes. And more specifically, I was kind of writing about one word which just is like the most grad school thing imaginable that like I'm going to write 35 pages about a single word. But it is a very important word for what that's worth. And this word in Hebrew is hevel. In Hebrew, the what we would consider the letter B as in boy and the letter V as in victor, they're very similar. It's kind of the same letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So hebel or hevel, you know, it could be could be pronounced different ways. I'm sure someone who actually speaks Hebrew could pronounce it more correctly than I can. But this word is probably the most important word for the book of Ecclesiastes. It does show up in other places in the Bible, and I'll mention a a couple of those. But out of the whole Hebrew Bible, if you find everywhere that this word appears, almost half are just in the book of Ecclesiastes. So like Ecclesiastes uses this word as much as the rest of the Hebrew Bible put together. And it is kind of the refrain of the book. He just keeps coming back to it again and again and again. And it is sort of his, it's his judgment on everything pretty much that he considers. So he like looks at all these things in the world and he looks at human nature and he looks at, you know, our own limitations. And again and again, he's like, this is Hevel, this is Hevel. So then the question is, what does it mean? And that is kind of what I worked on for my thesis. In 35 pages, you said. Thereabouts. I think there's an appendix. Oh, that's right. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've looked. I've read. I, uh, I'm not going to lie. I didn't get through all of it because. Uh, listen, I sent it to Josh. I was like, don't feel obligated. This is very dry. And I recognize that. Yes, that is totally fair. Is uh, not for everyone, to be sure. Um, so this word, Havel, in the English translations of the Bible, the most common translation that you'll find for it is the word vanity. So if you look in like the NRSV or the King James or I think like the NIV, a lot of English translations use vanity for this word. So at the very beginning of the book, it starts out with vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that that is sort of the refrain of the book. We keep coming back to it. So in English, it would say, this too is vanity. I saw that this also was vanity. And it's that same, it's that Hebrew word, hevel. Uh, Now, Josh, if Ecclesiastes says things are vanity, like, how do you take that when you're reading like an English translation? Uh, so, you know, at first I was really confused because 
you know, I, I understand vanity as two things. One, you're like self-absorbed in yourself or two, it's a bathroom fixture. So, <laughs> you know, I was really confused at first. I was like, vanity of vanity is like everything is vanity. Like, so everything is just self-absorbed. Right. Yeah. And I think like in contemporary English, like that is the connotation of the word vanity, right? I had not thought about the bathroom vanity. So thank you for that. But yeah, it's like being self-absorbed or self-obsessed or, you know, putting too much attention on uh, superficial things. None of that is really what Ecclesiastes is talking about. And when I was working on this um, in seminary, I discovered that translating this word as vanity goes back to the very first English translations of the Bible. So like the very, very, very first people who were translating the Bible into English in the like Reformation period were using vanity. But vanity in the 1500s, like think almost Shakespearean era, that word had different connotations than it does today. So like English has changed over the past 500 years. You'll be shocked uh, to learn. I know. Next, you're going to say um, words don't mean the same things that they used to. Words don't mean the same things that they did 500 years ago. It's really weird. Uh, so I think I think vanity 500 years ago was a better translation, but because the English meaning has changed, it's not that great a translation anymore. Without diving into like all the possible translations of this word in Hebrew. I do want to just kind of touch on its like root meaning and then its meaning within the book of Ecclesiastes. So the root meaning, as far as like biblical scholars can tell, is that it's it's like vapor. So something that is like temporary and intangible, like here today, gone tomorrow, just like a little puff of of air, basically. And then that comes to take on, you know, metaphorical kind of meanings of anything that is impermanent or temporary, ephemeral, or things that are like transitory that don't stay the same, things that are insubstantial or even deceptive. So it kind of has these other connotations under the like base meaning. The (laughs) bit of trivia that I find really fascinating about this is Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel back in Genesis? Yes, where Abel gives the best of his work as a sacrifice to God, and God's really pleased, and Cain kind of gives the leftovers, and God's not as pleased, and Cain gets grumpy about it instead of like, hey, this is my fault, he murders his brother. Pretty much, yeah. They both both bring their offerings to God, and I think... Abel brings a meat offering and Cain brings like a grain offering and God likes Abel's offering better. So Cain gets jealous and kills him. The name Abel in the book of Genesis is the same root as Hevel. So his name means temporary. (laughs) Well, that's not foreshadowing at all. Yeah. So I'm imagining like Adam and Eve have their sons, Cain and Abel, and they're like, you know, I think Abel's here for a good time, not a long time. 
And uh, yeah, that's that's his name. And then that is also his story. He does not stick around. So these are kind of the like roots connotations of Havel. And then in the book of Ecclesiastes, because it has such a like import for this book, the sort of scholarly argument is that it also kind of takes on a particular meaning for Ecclesiastes. And the translation that I kind of landed on, and I didn't come up with this, but I think a better translation of it into English is to say absurd. I do have to, I have to give credit where credit is due because this particular like translation is the one that a guy named Michael Fox uh, argues. Not Michael Fox, the actor, sadly. That would be amazing. No J. Uh, this is a, no J. It's, it's Michael V. Fox, not Michael J. Fox. Michael V. Fox says the best way to translate this word is absurd. And so his version of vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he translates as utterly absurd. Everything is absurd, which certainly like hits different than vanity of vanities. It does. So it's kind of saying, and I'm going to pull this up really quick because I want to make sure that I'm reading this right. So I'm just going to replace it with vanities. So it's basically absurd of absurdities. All is absurd. Why do people yeah. toil under the sun? I don't know. It's absurd. Why does generation go and generation comes? Because life's absurd. Yep. That hits a little so, like, different. Yeah, it hits different, right? The end of, of chapter one, I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is absurd and a chasing after wind. So, I mean, chapter one, and I'm, you know, it's going to put me back in a little bit of a grumpy old man mood, but it really is that, you know, life's, life's absurd, life's here, and that's all there, you know, that's it. Then it's done. Then you're done. Mm-hmm. You can work hard to have this amazing garden and just like it every winter, every fall, it's going to die. Now you can work to rebuild it, but someday you aren't going to be able to. Yeah. And it's it's that, I mean, we talked about this last time, this idea of like things are fundamentally unfair, justice, like people don't get their just desserts, that wicked people prosper and good people suffer and that this is absurd to Ecclesiastes, right? He's not saying, oh, it's it's temporary, right? Or it's transitory. Because if that was true, like, that would be good. <laughs> if, uh, you know, the wicked prospering was only temporary, that would be a good thing. But he's really saying, like, no, this is absurd because it goes against how things ought to be. So real gut check, I think, for a lot of people and a lot of scholars, and probably a pretty solid representation at the time that the Israelites struggled for a long, long time. And they kept struggling. Some of it was self-inflicted, but it's just they keep seeing these people like come and go. But their lot still getting the short end of the stick. Yeah. And I think about, you know, a story like the book of Job, right, where Job is like faithful and righteous and from Job's perspective, he just loses absolutely everything, right? Like all of his property is destroyed. His children are killed. He becomes sick and frail. And like, it's not fair, right? And like Job 
could very well say, like, this is absurd. What's happening to me is absurd. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And it's it's stronger than just being like, you know, this doesn't make sense and I'm confused, right? This is like, there's outrage. It It doesn't make sense. It's not how it should be. And like, that is frustrating it's painful and it's really kind of like an affront which is definitely the like vibe that ecclesiastes has yeah i can't i can't really add in here yeah that's all i got so maybe as we think about this like concept of the absurd we could look at chapter three because i feel like that's kind of a good like case study of what this whole book is about And I did mention last time, Ecclesiastes chapter three is probably the part that is most familiar to people because it has that, you know, for everything, there is a season of, of folk ballad fame, but it doesn't maybe mean what people think it means. So I think maybe that would be a good place to turn to. Did you use uh, turn to as a, as a pun? Not on purpose. Mm. Well, I like that. It was not an intentional pun, but it happened. I love it. Um, So some (laughs) might say there was a time to discuss the rest of Ecclesiastes, and there's a time to discuss chapter three. And we will turn, turn, turn to chapter three. (laughs) Oh, I kind of hate ourselves for that. (laughs) Hey, we warned people up at the top. Like, I love a good pun, but uh, now we're getting now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. So, Josh, I know that you were like looking at chapter three again. What did you notice when you were looking at it? I mean especially that first half it's very cut and dry there's a time to work there's a time to sleep there's a time to live there's a time to die there's a time to eat there's a time to you know go to the bathroom it obviously doesn't say that but that's it's kind of that meaning like there's times for everything and then there's times where nope you don't do that yeah so there's like a proper time for things and it you know in some ways it it does sound kind of nice right like Especially verse eight, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And it's kind of like everything is in balance. And, you know, even if things are bad right now, there's going to be a time for peace. So like it's going to get better. That I think is not as for Ecclesiastes, it's not as comforting as it might at first appear. Yeah, because like you said, it makes you feel at first you're like, okay, cool. You know, the, there's good things that come and there's, but showing that this, you know, from Ecclesiastes, like, well, it's just going to happen. I mean, you have no control over it. That's, that's the pro- thing. You're just kind of here for the ride until you're not. Yeah. So I think like if you look at the verses in chapter three after the like poem, so this is like starting in verse nine, it says, what gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given everyone to be busy with. God has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, God has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. So I'm going to say some maybe some controversial things here. All right. I everybody mean, get ready. This is, to me, this seems very classic Old Testament God. This is very like, look, I can do this. 
I can, I don't want to say make you have to do this, but you have to do this, but I'm, I'm the one making you do it, but you have to do it. So everyone can stand in awe of God like that. It's not comforting. You know, it really kind of just, you know, if you heard somebody say a dictator was like forcing people to do things like this and be like, you have to work, but you have, it's because I'm saying you have to work. But because of that, you have to like praise me. Mm. It's pretty crappy. You would think that guy is a jerk. You would, <laughs> you would straight up be like, that's, that's the villain. Sure. But yeah. you know, obviously that's not the case if you keep reading, but the old Testament, God is not always a comforting being. It seems like when you look at it. Yeah. I mean, like, I think at some point we should talk about Old Testament, New Testament, because I would also argue that, like, there are places in the New Testament where God doesn't seem very comforting. But, I mean, I get your point, right? If if you're imagining God as sort of a taskmaster, yeah, that's not that's not a very comforting way to understand God. No, and that really is what chapter three and I guess probably more felt like of Ecclesiastes felt like for me. It was just that God's making us do this. Yeah, and I think it really raises a question of like like what is God's agency and how much does Ecclesiastes think that God controls our lives? Because you could read this and have like a predestined deterministic view of like God has laid everything out and like there's a time to do things and you have to follow those times. Which doesn't leave much room for like free will or people to just be people. See, that's where I was. I was just thinking that like that is that whole do we have free will? That yeah. is a huge debate that I had in college that I listened to. Our friend Ryan and one of our professors would just I would just sit there and just watch because it was such a interesting and like unnerving conversation. But it's a it's a legit. Well, do we have free will? Well, yes. But really? Because Ecclesiastes doesn't feel like that. And if we do have free will, then we're, we're basically doomed because we can't make good decisions as a, as a people, as a person. You can't make the perfect decisions. So that gets into a whole new mess of things where people are kind of the, we screw up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And Ecclesiastes would definitely agree with that last bit, that human beings screw up a lot. This thing about like free will and determinism, I think is really important, like when you're reading this chapter. And I actually I did pull out my my commentary. So this is the guy that I was talking about, Michael V. Fox. And he has this book, which is called A Time to Tear Down and A Time to Build Up. And it's all about Ecclesiastes. But he has this whole section where he talks about this thing about time and like the right time for things. This is what Michael Fox says. The timing of most of the actions in the catalog, meaning like this list in chapter three, the timing of most of the actions in the catalog is to some degree in man's control. God does not force a person to do his sewing on a specific date. One can choose whether to sew his garment or not and whether to do it tomorrow or next month. When he actually does the sewing is not necessarily the time to sew. The time to sew would be when the rip is big enough to be worth fixing, but small enough to be repairable. If he sews it a month later, it may be too late, and working at it all night might not undo the damage. The situation that calls for sewing is sewing's time, not man's. At best, man can adapt himself to it. 
and apologies for gendered language. That's him, not me. But basically, the point is, you're not forced to do anything at the proper time. It's just that the proper time is the best time to do it. And if you don't, then there may be consequences. So you're saying, uh, like, for example, when I was in school way back when, so when the teacher was like, hey, you know, this is due next week. You should start tomorrow or before the weekend. And yes, then Sunday work night. work ahead on your big project. Yeah, and then Sunday night I'd be up late trying to get it done because I didn't want to do it. So I put it off. Or as I like uh, to address that as, I screwed over future Josh. Yeah, right. Past, past Josh screwed over present Josh. I relate to that. Yeah, present Josh usually gets shafted a lot, it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes past Josh bought, what was it, Cocoa Pebbles? Yeah, the Cocoa Pebble candy bar. So it's not all bad. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's this idea that there is a proper time for things to happen. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we are bound by those times, but it says like a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. And Josh, I know that you are like more involved in like farming communities than I am. But if you decided to plant all your crops in November, that might not be the right time. Yeah. I mean, because corn grows better in the summer and that yeah. stupid hotness. And if you harvest your crops too early, they might not be very good. And if you wait until it's too late, then weather or pests or whatever might destroy it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just I'm just still trying to wrap my head around everything because this is it's such a crazy book to me. So we don't necessarily have to do it at a certain time. This isn't what Ecclesiastes is saying. You're going to have to do it, but it's up to you when. Yeah, that we, I mean, we do have the choice to do things not at the right time. And I think, like, what is more of a struggle for Ecclesiastes is that we can't always know what the right time is. So, like, to go back to our farming example, farmers know when the correct time of year is to plant and to harvest various things. So they have, you know, they have a certain amount of wisdom about the proper time. But also, if you're a farmer, you can't predict that maybe there's going to be a late spring freeze, right? Or that, you know, there's going to be a flood that's going to wash things away before you can harvest them. So knowing the proper time is not always within our knowledge as human beings. And I think that's the part that really is a struggle for Ecclesiastes. He says, you know, God has put a sense of past and future into the minds of people. We understand that there are better times and worse times, but we don't always know what they are. And so we're trying to act on incomplete information that we are never going to be able to see the full picture to know when the exact right time is. I mean, that's a lot of everyday life, but it also is... That kind of example is used a lot in the Bible of, well, you won't know, but it's going to happen. I mean, the most prevalent one is the day of judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. You don't know the time or the hour or the plate. It's just going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Jesus says, like, keep awake because you don't know when it's going to happen. If you knew when the burglar was going to break in, that wouldn't be a problem because you'd be waiting for him. Right. 
Yeah, so that is exactly the thing that Ecclesiastes thinks is absurd, right? That the author of Ecclesiastes knows that there are proper times for everything, right? Everything has a season. Everything has a proper time. But the full picture is only known to God. And human beings have to act on incomplete information. And that is... I mean, it seems like almost painful for Ecclesiastes to know that you have to make moves and you're never going to have all the information that you need to make those moves. Yeah. And I think that's a really good kind of summary of everything we've, we've talked about at this up to this point. I think we are getting a little close on time, but we can finish a few more thoughts. I would just say, like, we are not going to go through the whole book of Ecclesiastes like this, but if you decide to like read more of Ecclesiastes, you're going to come across this, this is vanity, this is absurd, this is like chasing after the wind. And he has that kind of reaction to a lot of things within the human experience, which is what leads to that summary, like everything, everything is absurd, all is vanity. And so that kind of becomes his overarching judgment on the human experience Finishing up, Jenny, I just, you know, I kind of want to hear it from somebody that's obviously put the work and the effort and the understanding into Ecclesiastes. What's the overall message? Is there any hope? How does it give us any hope? Yeah, I think that is the key question. The, the very first tattoo that I got, because I didn't have any ink before seminary, and the very first tattoo that I got is on my, my inner arm, and it is in Hebrew, it says Hakol Havel, which means everything is absurd. And because it's like on my arm, it's visible a lot of the time and people will ask you about it, right? Like, oh, what does your tattoo say? And then when you tell them it says everything is absurd, they are like, no follow-up questions, like immediate end to the conversation, which as an introvert is ideal for me if I can just shut down that interaction as fast as possible. And the reason that I bring this up, aside from I just think it's very funny, is that Part of what I like about Ecclesiastes is that there isn't a nice, clean, like, moral to the story that kind of ties everything up with a bow and makes it comfortable. I think we often expect that from the Bible and expect that from faith. And I think especially Christians are really good at, like, latching on to those nice, like, spiritual platitudes, like, oh, it's all in God's plan. So I just really appreciate that there is a book in the Bible, right, like part of the canon um, that says like, nah, shit sucks. And I think like that in itself is very refreshing to know that that is very much like a part of our uh, faith tradition and, and identity. But I will say, because you mentioned hope, and I do think that's important, the commentary that I mentioned a time to tear down and a time to build up. He argues that that's what the whole book is doing. And he's taking that from chapter three, that there's a time to tear down and a time to build up. But his argument is that that's what the whole book is doing, is that it's tearing down assumptions and preconceptions that don't work, right, that don't hold up to scrutiny. And then he's trying to see, well, what can be built up that is sturdy, right? Like what kind of foundation can you rely on? B 
because if your principle is good people are going to get good things and bad people are going to get bad things, that just isn't going to hold up. And so Ecclesiastes is like, okay, but like there are some things, there are some principles that we can hold on to that are maybe not going to be quite as comforting. But to say like, you should do the best work you can and you should enjoy your life as much as you're able. It's that kind of like moderate, you're going to do the best you can, you're going to enjoy things the best you can, and that's kind of the best you can do. Which, depending on your perspective, is maybe really bleak or maybe it is kind of comforting of like, yeah, this is this is a life principle that is going to hold up. It's not going to crumble under you. I think that's a good lesson because, you know, you get all these chapters and books previous to Ecclesiastes that are this person overcame this because of their faith and because they worked diligently and Ecclesiastes is kind of like that everyday, like, yeah, everyday person, like you can do your best, but it's not necessarily going to be the reward that you specifically want, but yeah. you need to keep going and persevere. Yeah. Like do the best you can. Can I send us out with one last uh, Ecclesiastes quote? Well, I had one too. Ooh. All right. It's going to be great if we picked the same one. That would make me really happy. But I was going to leave us with Ecclesiastes 9-7. Is that the one you picked? It is not. Okay. We're going to... Th okay, this is great. These are our closing Ecclesiastes thoughts. Mine is Ecclesiastes 9-7. Kohelet says, Go eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has long ago approved what you do. Nice. I actually picked Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. I love it. So we're on the same wavelength, I would think. For sure. And I would say I am definitely finding enjoyment in doing this podcast. So it's all good. And I know for our audience, this one might have been a little, I don't want to say preachy, but it was definitely more of a Bible study as opposed to a Bible learning opportunity. I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I mean, like, we didn't quite have as much like, what about this? And what about this? What about this? Partly because I just have like too many opinions. Right. And I'm not going to lie. So if you have read Ecclesiastes and you're like, I don't get it, I don't get it. You know, I, I see now I see more of it. But like when I first read it, like, meh, it's just a bummer book. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I still love it. It speaks to my heart. I could see that. <laughs> I might just be a bummer person, though. I don't believe that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for indulging me with Ecclesiastes for two whole episodes. And we might pick up a third someday if we get antsy or we run out of ideas. Yeah, I would always come back. I'd always come back to my boy, Kohelet. Well, if you have any questions about Ecclesiastes or you want us to actually talk about it again, let us know. We have uh, contact information in the description. And thanks so much for listening. This is Irreverent Bible Talk. Thanks for listening to Irreverent Bible Talk. 
You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.